morning. It has been good the past couple weeks to see some of our military personnel back from deployment. So if you are back, uh, we are really glad that you're back. Trust God took care of you while you were away. But uh, it is great to have you back with us today. Well, today's passage is John 7, verses 53 uh, through 8, 11. And this passage is different from any passage I have ever preached. You say, why is that? Well, here's a screenshot uh, from the YouVersion Bible app. This is the New International Version. And this is what it says in brackets. Uh, some, some other translations have the whole passage in brackets, but it says this. Uh, it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have our passage, John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, after John 21, Luke 21, Luke 24. What does that mean? Well, what this means is that the consensus, the broad consensus of scholars is that this passage was not original to John, that John did not actually write this account, but it was added later. And the fact that it's found in a number of different places kind of confirms that that was the case. At the same time, Bible scholars that I respect, people like D.A. Carson and Bruce Metzger, they are also convinced that this, can, this account is reliable, that the, the events described here actually happened, and this account has the, the ring of authenticity. In other words, what is written here seems fully compatible with what Jesus taught and how he lived his life. And so what are the implications? Well, number one, we don't want to base a doctrine solely on this passage, okay? And so you don't want to find something here that's taught nowhere else and say it's true. That's why we don't, don't uh, handle snakes, for example, even though it says at the end of the long ending of Mark, which is a similar uh, disputed passage. At the same time, this passage can illustrate and reinforce things that are taught elsewhere in Scripture. And the fact that this passage has been so beloved by the church down through the ages, and the fact that it's not just omitted altogether without any comment, but it's actually put in brackets, suggests that this has been a valuable, uh, beloved passage of Scripture through the ages. I think that that evaluation will be confirmed as we study it this morning. By the way, we put the full manuscript on the website. We posted on uh, Monday morning. There's some, some other notes about uh, textual criticism as the, the uh, discipline that, that talks about how we have the text of our Bible. You can check it out there. But this is the account of the woman, quote unquote, caught in adultery. After the events of chapter 7, surrounding the Feast of Tabernacles, we read this. John 7:53. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Luke 21, Luke tells us that Jesus' normal, uh, normal uh, um, MO during this period of his ministry was to spend the night on the Mount of Olives, and then the next morning he would come back to the temple where he would teach. That's what we read in verse 2. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And so this would have been the outer court of the temple, not the inner building part. But, but rabbis would come, they would sit down, their, their uh, disciples would come and listen to them. Jesus took his place, he sat down and began to teach, and a whole crowd came and listened to him. 
his teaching was interrupted by these events. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And so this is like a courtroom scene. They caught her, they brought her, they put her in the center, they gave a charge, and they said, Jesus, what is the verdict? Now, we're told it was the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, the strictest sect within Judaism. They meticulously followed the letter of the law. The scribes were basically Hebrew scholars. They studied the, the Hebrew scriptures. And since their whole community, it was a theocracy, their whole community involved obeying the law, they were the ones that, that rendered judgments when things needed to be decided, such as this. And so these men were the authority, both religiously and socially. They had authority, but they had no compassion, absolutely no compassion. Can you imagine being this woman and she was brought and set in the middle of this crowd and they said, here's what she did. Have you ever been caught in the act? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever been caught? (laughs) Have you ever been caught in the act? You were found out? Well, the answer for every person in this room is yes, you have been. Sometimes by people, but every time by God. Nothing escapes his notice. Well, these verses raise all sorts of questions, don't they? By definition, adultery involves a married person having sexual relations with someone to whom he or she is not married. It always involves two people. Where is the man? Where is the man? The law stipulated that if if, uh, two people were caught in adultery, they both were sentenced to death. And if this, if this is the first time you're hearing that they stone people in the Old Testament, um, it's probably shocking to you. It, it offends all our sensibilities, but Israel was a theocracy. It was an expression of their holiness. If you lived in God's inheritance in Israel, you had to worship him. Things are different now. Well, now we're going to the nations, but that was the case then. But the the law stipulated that both had to be put to death. By bringing only the woman, the scribes, and the Pharisees have already compromised both the letter and the spirit of the law. And how did they catch this woman in the act? Okay, I mean, it just seems like a setup from the get-go. In verse 6, we're told the motive of the scribes and the Pharisees. They uh, They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. So now we see it wasn't this woman who was on trial. Jesus was on trial. I don't know if you've ever had this done, but people ask you a question just to trap you. Uh, it's, it's just a horrible way to, to, to approach uh, important issues. But they asked Jesus to, to render a verdict on this woman in order to use his words against him. And they were probably wanting to accuse him of being soft on sin. After all, somebody who cavorted with tax collectors and sinners, he probably wasn't going to say, yeah, let's stone this woman here and now. And so they were going to accuse him of saying, well, Jesus doesn't even believe the law. He's a lawbreaker. And then we read, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. And the question we all wonder is what? 
What did Jesus write? And you've got a lot of options. If you read the commentaries, there's, there's all sorts. Some, well, was he writing the other nine commands besides don't commit adultery? Uh, was he uh, writing the names of the of these scribes and Pharisees? Jeremiah 17 said, those that turn away from the Lord, their names will be written in the dust. Maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe Jesus was doodling. Maybe he was just ig- ignoring them. My favorite, my favorite suggestion, and when I read this, I'm like, oh, I hope this is true, is that just like uh, the Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God, Jesus... God in the flesh, was writing with his finger on the ground. The law, the old covenant, was being replaced with the law of love. And so you've got options. The bottom line is we don't know what Jesus wrote because we aren't told what Jesus wrote. And if we aren't told, it's not essential that we know. What matters more than what he wrote is that he wrote in the ground. So here's the scenario. They come to him, they drag this woman in there, and they say, Jesus, she's been caught in the act of adultery. Should we do what the law says? And so they're like, tell us what your verdict is. And instead of just immediately coming back at him, it's be like grabbing your phone and and flipping through your, your Twitter feed or something. Jesus stoops down and he writes on the ground. He takes his time and he takes their time. He's saying a question like that doesn't deserve a quick answer. And they were clearly annoyed. Uh, That becomes obvious when we read in verse 7. This is while Jesus was still stooped down, writing on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And this is a witness to the law of witnesses. It's found in Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7. And there we read that if somebody does a detestable thing in Israel, and in the context it was idolatry, it wasn't adultery, but if somebody did a detestable thing, that the accused person would be stoned to death on the witness of two or three persons. And so if only one person came with the accusation, that person could not be accused. But if a person was accused on the basis of two or three witnesses and they were convicted, the witnesses are the ones who cast the first stone. So they started lobbing stones at this person and then the rest of the community. It was a corporate event, stoning somebody. Well, Jesus did not say, if you were an eyewitness of this woman's adultery, cast the first stone. Jesus said, if you are without sin, cast the first stone. New winds are blowing in Israel. The the old covenant, the law is becoming obsolete. It's going to be replaced with the new covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus did not come to condemn sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. And so when Jesus stands up after riding on the ground, the woman's not on trial. He's not on trial. The scribes and the Pharisees are on trial. They're the guilty ones. They're the ones who are not without sin. And every time you and I pick up a stone, literally or metaphorically, whenever you and I condemn somebody with no, no thought, with no compassion, with no intent to see that person experience the freedom of Christ. We're on trial, okay? 
And so Jesus just masterfully turns the table. Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Fascinating details, aren't they? It says that they went out one by one. They didn't just go out en masse. They didn't just all flood out of the the temple. But one by one, the words of Jesus soaked down into their hearts and they became convicted. One by one, they realized, I am not without sin. I am not qualified by Jesus' criterion to cast the first stone. And we're told they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. The implication being that those that were older, uh, they had a greater sensitivity to the Spirit of God. They had a greater understanding of their own sin. The pride, the arrogance of youth was melted away, and they realized, yeah, I'm not without sin. And uh, the same thing can happen to us. If we're teachable, as we get older, we become more humble and more soft to the Spirit of God, but only if we're teachable. Some people become harsh and angry, and they become bitter old people, and that happens when you resist the Spirit. That happens when you walk in anger and judgmentalism and condemning other people year after year after year, and my theory is you don't become grumpy and angry and bitter in your old age. My theory is that the person you are becomes obvious in your old age. You get to the point where you say, I don't care. I don't care what people think. I'll wear boxer shorts to Walmart if I want to. I'll just do whatever I want. And so there's a warning there. There's a warning. The person you are will one day become obvious. Pharisees aren't given much love in the, in the, the Gospels. But I'm impressed here. The scribes and the Pharisees showed up filled with pride, but they walked away humbled. And the result was that Jesus was left alone with this woman. The only person who was without sin was left alone with this person. The only person who was qualified to condemn her, the only person who was qualified to cast the first stone, was left alone with this woman. And Jesus has not answered the Pharisee's question yet, but when he's alone with her, he's about to answer the question, Jesus, what do you say we should do? And that's the way Jesus works in my, my uh, experience. You want to know, well, what about that person? What about what they did? And Jesus says, not your business. I will tell them, okay? And so when he's alone with this woman, we read in verse, verse 10, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. And so he first pronounced, I don't condemn you. And Jesus was not saying, I know you know this, Jesus was not saying adultery, that's no big deal. Don't don't worry about it. Let's just forget about that. Jesus was not soft on sin. You know who's going to take her condemnation? You know who's going to be judged, who's going to be accused, tried, convicted, and executed for her sin? Jesus, 
nobody can accuse Jesus of being soft on sin. He came to save sinners. But he pronounced this. This is an expression of his compassion, his mercy, his grace. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came that we might experience eternal life. And based on that foundation of grace, Jesus next spoke truth to this woman. Go, from now on, sin no more. And this sounds a lot like John 5. And this is one reason why we accept this as, as uh, consistent with Jesus' teaching. You may remember in John 5, 14, Jesus healed this man who had been uh, sick. He had been lame for 38 years. <clears throat> John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And you may remember we talked about it there. In the Gospels, the way a person learns to sin no more, it's not by willpower, it's not by being committed, it's not by trying harder, it's by becoming a disciple of Jesus. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a disciple of his, and you learn to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's how you sin, that's how you sin no more. And so when Jesus tells this woman in John 8, from now on, sin no more, he's telling her, become my disciple, learn a different way of life. You will learn how to avoid this life of sin. And if you want to know the tone of voice Jesus was speaking in, I suggest you look further down in John 8, go down to verse 31 and see Jesus' perspective on sin. It turns out that Jesus told people, become my disciples and stop sinning because that's the path of freedom. Jesus wanted people to experience freedom. It wasn't following some picky rules. It's like a life of discipleship is a life of freedom. Look at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So, of course, sin has its passing pleasures, but it also produces bondage. It also keeps us enslaved. Verse 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so this woman, if she would become Jesus' disciple, let his word dwell within her, learn to obey everything Jesus commanded, she would experience True freedom, maybe for the first time in her life. She would experience this freedom from the bondage of sin. That's the gospel. There is freedom in following Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Christ, you're going to have to take this on, on, uh, on uh, the account of other people's experience. But there is freedom in following Christ. And so the question today's passage poses to us is this. Do you hear Jesus saying to you, number one, I do not condemn you. And number two, sin no more. Go, sin no more. Why do we need to hear this question? Because every single one of us in the room is the woman caught in adultery. Every single one of us is the woman caught in adultery. No sin goes unnoticed. We've all been caught. Hebrews 4 says, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, nobody gets away with anything in the sight of God. 
And so each of us needs to hear Jesus say, I do not condemn you and sin no more. And at different times in your life, different situations, you might need to hear, both, hear those in different proportions. If you were just crushed by the, the grief and the weight of your sin, you might need to mainly hear first, I don't condemn you. But you also need to hear, sin no more. And so we're like the woman in, in John 8, we need to hear both. I want to make two observations that might help us hear this more clearly. The first is this, is that our obedience must be built on the foundation of grace. He pronounced, I don't condemn you, before he said, sin no more. If you go out and try to sin no more without experiencing the grace of Jesus, it's not going to happen, okay? It just save your time. You need to experience the grace of Jesus first then you can experience freedom from sin. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the love of Christ that should control us. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says it best. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be in Christ Jesus. So just like, let me get this on stuff here. Just like this bulletin is in this Bible, you will be in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. God says, I will never hold your sin against you. The condemnation you deserved fell on Jesus Christ. And there's a world of difference between, there's two ways of approaching uh, obedience. There's a world of difference between saying, because of what I've experienced, because of the grace I've experienced, because, of my, because I've experienced the love of God as an expression of love for him, I'm going to obey. There's a world of difference between that and saying, I'm pretty sure God's mad at me, and so I'm going to try to obey so that I'll feel better and I'll sort of deserve God's favor. This doesn't work. This is what Jesus is advocating. And so think of an area of your life in which you need to learn obedience. It could be a sinful habit. It could be an addiction. Uh, it could be a lack of compassion for people close to you or people far away. It could be any number of things. I've been convicted of a number of things uh, this week. Uh, the one I feel safe sharing with you is uh, I've been convicted about saying careless words. And uh, oftentimes, so I have 30 or 40 conversations on Sunday morning. I often wake up on Monday morning with this feeling in my gut like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I had to say a, a careless word. Instead of giving grace, instead of meeting the need of the moment, uh, Ephesians 4.29, sometimes I just talk and I say hurtful things. I say careless things, things I don't really mean. And my, I, I feel condemned by that. I need to hear Jesus say, I don't condemn you, but you need to learn to do different. You need to learn to, to honor me with your words. And so I can't give you three easy steps for becoming convinced that there's no condemnation in Christ and for convincing you to, to trust God as an expression of your love for him, learn to be obedient. But my main counsel would be fix your eyes on Jesus. Ponder the reality that he endured the cross so that you don't have to be condemned. Preach the gospel to yourself that there's no condemnation in Christ until you are so smitten by the love of God that you say, because, I, because you love me, I want to love you. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Obedience is a response of love. 
A further motivation, and we'll make tracks on this, our obedience equips us to become, equips us to help others become obedient. I've heard Christians say this, and uh, they, they basically said, you know, until I'm sinless, I have no point in talking to anybody else about their sin. And uh, the idea is that, yeah, until I get my act together, I'm not going to even bring it up. And it is true. Like Jesus, we don't go around judging people kind of as a hobby or a sport, and we never condemn people. Why would we do that? That's just too easy. That anybody, you don't have to be a Christian to condemn people. Jesus didn't condemn people for their sin. But the Great Commission, Matthew 28, does involve making disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. Who's going to teach people to obey? Who's going to help people address areas of disobedience? Well, people who have already learned to obey, people who have come to the place where they experience freedom. They're the ones that help other people experience freedom. It's been said that in our day, the the most popular uh, Bible verse that's known outside the church is this, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Don't judge me, right? That's, that's the mantra in our society. We must keep reading. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Compared to your brother, you've got something big going on. He's got something small. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. And here's the point. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Stop sinning. Experience freedom. Become a disciple of Jesus and, and, and experience that. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so the person who has gone through this painful and often tedious process of learning to stop sin, sinning in some area. That's a person who becomes humble. That's a person who is legitimately helpful to other people who need to learn how to stop sinning and obey the commands of Christ. Now we see clearly to help others get past their sin. Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You don't want a harsh person. You don't want a judgmental person. You don't want an unspiritual, somebody who's not led by the spirit. You don't want that person looking at your sin, okay? That will be a scribe or a Pharisee. No, you want somebody who's been refined, somebody who's humble, somebody who, who understands how to, how to deal with sin. That's the kind of person God can use. And we need many, many people like that here at Faith and in the body of Christ. We need people who have been refined, who have found freedom from sin, who can help others experience freedom. It's really at the heart of our mission. Heavenly Father, we ask that we might be those type of persons God, for the person who is crushed by his or her guilt, his or her shame here this morning, may that person hear from Jesus, I do not condemn you. If that person's not trusted Christ, let that person bow the knee to Jesus in faith. 
take away his or her sin, give him or her life. And God, to the person who's acting carelessly and recklessly, who's just living a selfish, self-centered life of indulgence, may that person experience grace and also hear, go and sin no more, become my disciple, follow me, experience freedom. God, we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy body of Christ. We want to be winsome. We want to live the type of lives that others would want. And so, God, do this refining work in our midst. And may we all, every one of us, put down our stones, stop condemning, and become legitimately helpful, sharing the good news of the gospel, showing people how to live. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.